You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. This is episode 142 on The Suburbs. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. We're back to recording very early in the morning, so I'm in a good mood. Uh, Joining me today, as usual, is associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. It's Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? It's going pretty well. I'm I'm actually recording from my office for the first time in I think two or three years now. So uh, it's 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 going to be interesting to see if my colleagues uh, get irritated with me very quickly for talking to myself for an hour every week. You got to <laughs> soundproof your office. Also croaking with us from McPherson, Kansas, where he's a professor of English at Central Christian College. It's David Grubbs, who is somehow even sicker this week than last week. Ribbit, ribbit. How's, yeah. it, how's it going besides that, David? Yeah. Uh, other than that, it's the first week of classes, and and I sound like this. I am. I feel so off my game. So, you know? so Grubs, Grubs may be quiet this episode. Mercifully quiet. I think I gave you <laughs> most of the questions too, David. For some reason, yeah, you're getting pitched more than Nathan this time. Yeah, I'm really noticing that. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't know you'd be sick. <laughs> Well, um, as I said, our topic today is the suburbs. Um, so let's just uh, let's just get started with it. Uh, to those of us who grew up in the suburbs, they can seem like a timeless phenomenon because <clears throat> the place you grow up is, for all intents and purposes, uh, the primordial world for you. But in fact, the suburbs are a relatively recent phenomenon in human history. Uh, Grubbs, can you tell us how, when, and why they were developed? And maybe, if you if you think about it, what what sorts of precursors there were to the suburbs? Sure. Um, well, they're relatively recent, and they're not relatively recent. Uh, the word itself, as you know, if if you kind of sit back and think about it, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, that sounds Latin." Um, uh, the 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 herb uh, uh, is well it 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 means under the under the hill um, in Rome uh, Rome was built on seven hills and there was that area um, down below the hills outside the city walls which was called the suburb it was the what was beyond the outskirts of uh, developed urban Rome. And it was where uh, the agricultural um, uh, areas started. So there were little farms and little villages, um, you know, that were suburbs of Rome. Now, that might not seem to have a a whole lot of connection uh, to modern suburbs, but it is where we get the word. Uh, Also... Because the uh, the elites of Rome, uh, 
you know, naturally they had houses in the city, but they also had villas in the suburb. So especially during, uh, during the summer when it was hot, uh, they would often kind of go out into that suburban area where they had gardens and pools and, you know, th- things were things were a little cooler out there in the suburbs. So, you know, the idea of, you know, those who were more affluent fleeing the conditions of the city um, is actually something that's been happening for a while. <laughs> um in English, the first, uh, I looked this up in the OED, uh, the first occurrence uh, that I can see the, the Oxford English Dictionary citing of the word suburb uh, is from a Middle English Psalter from Deuteronomy 32.32. Um, modern translations say their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. In Middle English, it's their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the suburbs of Gomorrah. That's excellent. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, that, that's an album title right there. The suburbs of Gomorrah. Yes. So, <laughs> um, and uh, London, the, the outskirts of London, um, the, the, the village outskirts, the more rural outskirts of the city of London uh, in England have been called the suburbs basically since... Uh, since the high middle ages, uh, since the age of Chaucer, those have been the suburbs. Uh, what helps create what we see as the, the, the modern suburb phenomena is improvements in transportation, um, improvements in roads. Um, well, for, first, uh, improvements in roads and then the invention of, uh, the locomotive, um, train transit made, um, moving from a residence in the suburb to employment in urban centers plausible. Yeah, the growth of the so, bedroom community, as they call them. Right. So um, suburbs did not create commuting. Commuting created suburbs. Um, and then uh, add the invention of the motor car. Um, so it's it's not just the train, and then later, it, and then later the, the motor car makes... Um, makes travel from the suburbs to the urban centers again more um, more viable um, and from what I can see it was uh, a lot of it just had to do with simple economics. It was cheaper to own property and live a relatively comfortable life in the suburban area um but the more lucrative uh, employment was in the urban center, and so the ability um, in the in that kind of Victorian era to take a train, and then later in the early 20th century to take a car or a bus or whatever, um, allowed those things to go together. And then, well, we see what happened in America. Um, suburbs are. We see them especially in um, newer, uh, well, I guess I guess younger cities, younger settled areas um, in Europe, where there's um, where cities are much, much, much older, and there's not as much land around the cities. There isn't as much suburbs, but in the United States, 
um, in Australia, places like that, where there's a lot of open land around urban centers, um, the conditions for suburbs are prime. And so they just expand on and on and on and on. And you have your transportation arteries to make the whole thing work. So what am I leaving out? Nathan? About the only thing I'd add is that, you know, the American suburb, uh, as it exists in my own imagination and that of the literary tradition, uh, like David said, I mean, has a lot to do with the manufacture and mass production of automobiles in the 20th century. It also has a good deal, I think, to do with the expansion of the road system and especially the construction of interstate highways uh, mm. in the mid 20th century. I mean, the uh, the idea that for instance, you know, someone would commute into the city of Atlanta on I-85 is something that, uh, well, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, came to very, uh, very public attention uh, about a year ago with snowpocalypse. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, it really is a part of the life of the city. I mean, you know, uh, one describes the location of one's home in terms of outside the perimeter and inside the perimeter in Atlanta. Right. And likewise, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact there's that there's a big color divide there too. Oh, sure. Sure. And the fact that, you know, uh, people talk about, you know, the mentality inside the beltway in, you know, the capital of the United States. Uh, that's another interstate reference. Mm-hmm. It sounds so like the, the suburbs inter- may, uh, may create the traffic jam. Yeah. I, I think it's symbiotic. I mean, I think the traffic jam makes the necessity for more roads, and then more roads mean that they sell more cars, and then more cars means there's more traffic. Well, well, the first thing that that creates the traffic jam is the fact that the urban centers in which the automobiles were first introduced were not designed to have automobiles in them. Right. <laughs> sure, right. sure. And, and Americans so, are so you know, resistant to, to public transportation that – Mm-hmm. I mean, Atlanta is a is a case in point. Here is a city that, if it had a good commuter train like Chicago, traffic would decrease by some percentage, and people took it. I mean, that's the other problem: is even if you build it, a lot of people won't take it because Americans are resistant to public transportation, as I said, um, especially in certain parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems as if the 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 Beltway, the interstate system, is in some way functioning like the walls of Rome um, hmm. as, as, as that, as that perimeter that marks the, uh, the herb from the suburb. Mm-hmm. We, we'd also be <clears throat> remiss if in talking about the history of the suburbs, we did not bring up Levittown, which is the, the first, I, I don't know. It's not the first suburb, but it's the first planned suburb community. It's in um, New York City. And, and I believe, I, I haven't studied Levittown, but I believe all the house. it was built in like 1946 or 47. It's right after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for some of the very reasons you guys were talking about, which is it, it, it's always been quite expensive to live in New York City. So why not get a, a instead of living in a 300 square foot apartment, why not spend the same amount of money and get a 2,000 square foot house? Yeah. Um, but I, I believe I believe you could choose from two or three different house plans, and it's very uh, – I was going to say very small yards, but the yards probably look enormous if you're used to living in an apartment building with no yard, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, so the suburbs to me in, in that sense seem to be like a line between – uh, the, the, the way I think about it is it, it's a line between the, the 
urban world and the the frontier if such a thing still existed in 1947 it, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's an early there's an early american text called letters from an american farmer by a, a french guy actually it was not an american farmer uh j mm-hmm. hector st john de crevecoeur and he um he talks about the american farm as being this kind of median ground between the rotting cities of the old world and uh the frontier which is of course lawless uh, and I, I think that the suburbs probably took over that role for a lot of people in the middle of the 20th century. It, it, mm-hmm. beca- it became a place where, especially once the cities became more violent, um, it became a place where you were free from that sort of thing. But at the same time, you weren't, um, you weren't cut off from culture. You could easily hop on a train or hop in your motor car, as David charmingly put it, and, uh, and, and get, to, get to the cultural center of the world in 45 minutes or an hour. So, so it, 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 you know, it becomes this kind of promised land for a lot of people uh, living in the cities unhappily during that time. Mm-hmm. Well, and people have been living in cities unhappily for a very long time. <laughs> and, then, and then you know, then it turns out they lived in the suburbs unhappily. And if they'd moved to the country, they would have been unhappy there too. I suspect for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> unhappiness follows humanity. But I, I, I'm glad you you gave us that history lesson, David. I was not a, aware that the word went back that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, the modern suburb, as, as we think of it, most Americans think of it as a is a post war phenomenon. It, it 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 is, but the the concept of wanting to get out of the city for for the sake of quality of life is actually as old as the word itself. Um, and you, you, I mean, you even see it in uh, Elizabethan England, and later than that, when you have um, the uh, the aristocrats who are part of the royal court, and so they have this life in the the center of power in London, but they also have their country houses. Mm-hmm. Where um, they could go bunburying. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Where they where they yes, well, there's that. <laughs> but but also where they could get away from the plague. <laughs> well but 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 the difference is the suburbs as as we have known them for the last sixty years or so are not an upper class phenomenon in fact. They're no, they're a they're a middle class phenomenon. But of course, mm-hmm, the middle class true. didn't really exist in in Elizabethan England, at least not to the degree it did in 1947 New York. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I guess all I'm saying is that an instinct that we see present earlier in history became more affordable at a particular point. Right. Right. And <laughs> and, and not just more affordable; it became it became a thing that that a certain class of people expected and were expected to do. Hmm. Yep. I'm going to treat the, this episode, at least for a few minutes, as another one of our periodic ecosystem episodes. Nathan, we have talked about the ocean and the forest before. Those were both Grubbs episodes. But what, what qualities are typical of the suburbs, either in real life or in artistic depictions of them? Well, uh, when I start to think about suburbs in terms of ecology, I think about them as uh, being a function of the lifespan of a human being. So uh, the way that I think about suburbs is, you know, when one – has a childhood in the suburbs uh it is in one's imagine in one's imagination at least a sort of middle ground between the country relatives on one hand and then the dangerous big city where someone's always grabbing your hand on the other 
then, you know, when one uh, reaches adolescence and young adulthood, uh, the suburbs is where no one wants to be from. Uh, and, you know, the, the phenomenon that came to mind here is the fact that when I was growing up, you know, everyone in the suburbs by their choices of, you know, certainly movies and, you know, of books to read, but most especially in terms of music, tried to signal that they don't really belong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, either they're listening to country music to indicate that they are really rural folks or they're listening to hip hop to show that they were really city folks and they just happen to be doing time in no man's land, if you will. <laughs> but, and what's interesting about that is many of their parents probably moved to the suburbs when they were, when they wanted to have children because they felt like that was the place for children. And that's the next spot, you know, uh, because it is so often a place where people buy their first home and when they, you know, settle down with young, young children, uh, that cycle sort of begins again. So, I mean, on the one hand, when you're 17, you don't want to be from there. When you're 27 and you got young kids, you want your kids to be from there. Uh, and then, I mean, what's most interesting, and I mean, I think this is idiosyncratic of the block where my parents live in the suburbs of Indianapolis. Uh, but it is where, at least in 2014, I think of as people growing old and reaching the end of their lives. Uh, my parents are in their 60s, but on the block where I grew up, for some reason, and I, I have no medical explanation for this, uh, everyone seems to live into their late 80s and their 90s. So hmm. my parents are the youngsters at 64. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, the... The ecological metaphor, you know, another metaphor that that came to mind when I was thinking about this is uh, a sort of estuary environment. Uh, It's the place where, at least in, you know, again, and and I'm treating my own uh, childhood home of Plainfield, Indiana, as sort of the paradigm here. Uh, The suburbs are the places where, you know, you have a lot of truckers hubs and you have a lot of warehouse space and you have a lot of places where goods that are grown and raised and you know so on and so forth in the farms and the rural areas make their way into the cities uh at at least in indiana i realize this isn't a universal thing i'm well aware of upton sinclair and the the uh meat packing plants of the great lakes in the 19th century but Uh, At least in Indiana, as I remember it, you know, the slaughterhouses and the manufacturing areas tend to be out in the suburbs away from the downtown area. Uh, So, I mean, like I said, I mean, I think of it as a sort of boundary ground, like Michael was talking about earlier, not only in terms of sort of civilization, if you will, uh, but also in terms of the economic activity of an area. The suburbs are where the people usually have their homes, so a lot of the consumer activity goes on out there, whereas I think of the urban centers as sort of the management hubs, if you will. Uh, David, what other ecological realities would you add to that? Well, for, for me, the major ecological reality of the suburb is you have a yard to mow. <laughs> That's why I don't <laughs> want to live in the suburbs, man. <laughs> well, but but I mean, but think about that. I mean, you have a yard to mow. You don't have a tractor. <laughs> yeah, you're not bush hogging, right? But nor are you uh, 
one of one of many in an apartment or you know a townhouse unit where some other guy does that um yeah and 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 I think that 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 creates the the fact that you know the the suburbanite um you know the the the, the suburbanite typically has a domicile for which that owner is responsible for the maintenance mm-hmm. in in a way that doesn't go quite as far as a farmer. He's not making any money off the maintenance of his house. Oh, you <laughs> got that right. Property, right? <laughs> but nor is it someone else's job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and, and I, I think that makes a serious difference to the way one lives in the world mm-hmm. when one is responsible for the upkeep of where one lives. Um, but in a way that's not, you know, it's, it's not actually tied to generating their livelihood. <laughs> right. Right. Well, um, that's changing too. And I, and this is one of the things that just bugs the snot out of me. Uh, I am maybe one of three people on my block who mows his own grass. Okay. Just because the, the landscaping industry in North Georgia is so big. And yeah. I, I mean, that, that's one of the things that Mary and I often have a uh, tension about is, you know, she says, why don't you just hire Joel? He's the landscaper who lives across the street from us. You know, he could mow our grass and then it would be just done when we get home. And I say, Mary, that, that, that's it's, not what owning a home is about. Like, <laughs> you guys are so old grass. fashioned. It's my grass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that, and the other thing <laughs> I tell her is, I mean, that's some of the only exercise I get. <laughs> I, I hope to never mow another lawn in yeah. my entire life. And I'll I tell you this, too. Uh, the, the other thing you don't have to worry about in Georgia is shoveling snow. My heavens. Oh, that this is true. This yeah. is true. I, yeah, like I said, I grew up in Indiana, so I know I know my way around a shovel. I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. Most people up here have snowblowers. Yeah. But, you know, from a child's perspective, you know, my, yeah, my dad had to mow that yard. And when I got old enough, I had to mow that yard. That's what sons are for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that yard was where I played, man. You know, mm-hmm. and we had, I lived on a hill and basically there were no fences between front yards and we would just run all the way down the hill. All my friends on the block, we, we, we just had the run of the, of the, of the block. Mm-hmm. You know? And we didn't have hills in Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, which is, you know, kind of the last the last woohoo of the Appalachians as they trickle off to the Southwest. Um, but yeah, I, I remember it just being awesome, uh, to have all of that outside space, um, to, to play in and, you know, the neighborhood kids. And I, 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 well, I, I will say that I'm thinking about this right now because, uh, yesterday the, mother of the family at the that lived at the end of the block that I and my siblings played with we we played with the coolies uh, yesterday mrs cooley passed away hmm. and she was part of my ecosystem growing up she was the one who always had Kool-Aid in the fridge right she was the one who would let you eat the oatmeal cookies when your mom wouldn't <laughs> you um, grew up in a Campbell's soup commercial, David. <laughs> oh come on! It was 
I okay. When I was a teenager, I was not ashamed of being from the suburbs. I've never been. I've I've never thought, oh, the suburbs. That's I, I've I've literally never felt that in my life. I had a great childhood, and you know, so I'm go, I'm going to be the guy in this episode who's like, yeah, I don't see the problem. Good. We uh, we, we need we need that. I mean, um, part of <laughs> part of what I'm trying to do here is is to set up the suburbs as a place of virtue and vice. So so with that in mind, mm. David, since you're in the mood to d- defend the suburbs, tell me what what virtues are uh, particularly possible there. Possible? Um, well, never a guarantee, right? But but what what sorts right. of virtues are fostered by the suburbs that wouldn't be fostered by rural areas or urban areas? Um, now I never, I never lived in an urban area, so and not, not truly. So I, I, I can't compare it as much to that, except, you know, you know, what I saw in movies, right? Um, which is not super fair. Um, I can compare it to, um, to living in more rural areas. Um, my cousins who lived, uh, in the country only saw other children at school when they went back home they were miles and miles away from any other child where i lived i was i was always with other children um outside of that formal structure of school so uh one of the virtues that that was possible in the suburb that i grew up in I'm not going to say it's always true or still true. One of those, one of the virtues of where I lived was um, there was a kind of broad hospitality and broad acquaintance with neighbors, and we knew all the people in all the houses up and down the block. We would visit them; they would visit up; uh, they would visit us. Um, my dad was the head of the neighborhood watch, and we would have parties once a year um with just people in the neighborhood and for for me growing up you know if the virtue the 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 virtue that i saw there was uh of of neighbors and neighborliness hospitality that was that was something that uh something that I experienced. That was my, that was my experience too, growing up in the suburbs. Our, our, uh, our whole neighborhood would get together for block parties and, and stuff like that. And I, I wonder, because I, I have lived in, I suppose two suburbs and an exurb since then. Um, all mm-hmm. the su- suburbs appear a little different. Uh, suburbs and exurbs in, uh, around Minneapolis tend to have been small towns that the, the city swallowed. As it expanded, right. so so like there there's not planned communities as much. It's it's it, it's like living in a small town, but it's actually a suburb. Anyway, um, I, I I wonder about that because in the three in the three suburbs slash exurbs I've lived in since then, I haven't known any of my neighbors, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's something that is disappearing nationally, or if it's just when you have kids. You you make friends with your neighbors more easily, or I, I don't know. Can either of you shed any light on that? Um, I think part of it has to do, honestly, with the increase in the size of an average uh, residential plot. Uh, and I say that because, you know, I grew up on a, a quarter-acre plot. You know, I mean, I could I could throw a baseball from the, 
very back of, you know, our, well, I mean, from the alley behind our house and hit the neighbor's house across the street. I was told not to do that, but I could. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, for instance, the house that I own now uh, is a full acre. I mean, it's four times the size. And for that reason, I mean, you know, growing up, I could walk a mile in, you know, any given direction and get to two grocery stores, the elementary school I attended, the junior high I attended, the high school I attended, the public library, the church that, you know, my mom tried to get me to grow up in. Uh, you know, I could walk pretty much anywhere. Now, if I walk a mile in any direction, I've still got a mile and a half before I get to a post office, which is the closest thing to our house. Mm. Yeah, and Georgia I mean, my, suburbs are horrifying. And I mean, my hunch is that I mean, well, but I mean, the new subdivisions around Plainfield, Indiana, where I grew up, are the same way. I mean, you, unless you have all day, you have to have a car to get anywhere. Yeah, and and in the the new suburbs up here are the same way. Like I lived in Waconia, and Waconia has a mm-hmm. has a town, and I lived in the town part. And then across the highway, there are those the 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 sort of Georgia style planned communities. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I have a hunch that I mean the sheer size of home lots has something to do with it. Now, mm-hmm. it, it's funny. I, I find that to be a vice. Uh, you know, Mary, whose parents, you know, live out in the middle of nowhere, like David was describing, you know, uh, thinks, well, yeah, why wouldn't you get in a car to go anywhere? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, right. it's just kind of, you know, part of what she's always known. You know, she's never been in a place where you walk everywhere. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, my my own kids, I mean, just because, um, you know, we go to church in Athens and, you know, uh, Mary and I don't work there in the town where we live. They don't spend as much time as I would like with neighborhood kids. But I mean, I think you're right, Michael, that the folks on our block who don't have young kids tend not to interact with the neighbors as much as the ones with kids do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to think back to my childhood and remember if, Number, there must have been childless couples in our neighborhood. I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember if they came to any of the parties. Mm-hmm. On on the street I grew up on, it was all it was families with children and elderly people. Mm-hmm. And and the elderly people loved, you know, loved for the children to visit. So, you know, I I grew up visiting the widows on my street, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and they loved that, you know, that was, that was my normal. So, right. And I guess the other virtue that I would point to David, in addition to the neighborhood community is that at, at least in a relatively small suburb, like I grew up in, there was a sense of belonging to a town community Uh, Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the things about, you know, contemporary politics that I'm sure our listeners are tired of me griping about uh, is the fact that, you know, within a community based on one's political party affiliation, you know, the national parties will set you against your immediate geographic neighbors for the sake of partisan gain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up, I mean, even if I didn't especially like one of my public school teachers, there was never the sense that they were the enemy politically. Yeah. In a way that I hear so much now. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, people who, uh, you know, like my wife who teaches, you know, at a public middle school, you know, I mean, there are people who will 
well, I mean, until I bite their leg, uh, we'll talk very openly about, you know, how awful these public school teachers are and, you know, they're ruining the country and they're corrupting the youth. And, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've gotten cranky as I've gotten older about, you know, people saying things like that. But it, it's one of those things where, you know, because my fourth grade teacher lived on the next block and, you know, I walked by his house every day. <laughs> You know, there was no sense that, you know, somehow the enemy that was going to destroy America was living down there. Right. Of course, that may have also been that you were a child. Oh, it could have been, yeah, but I mean, I, what, what would that change? I'm curious. You would, you would not, I mean, how aware are children of politics? You, 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 um, you know? Yeah, but I mean, I, I feel like that persisted into high school. I Maybe. mean, when I was very aware of politics, I, I just I just feel like we got to be careful. We all we all seem to have had relatively happy childhoods in the suburbs. We have to make sure. Oh, we, sure, sure. We have to make mm. sure we don't let the n- nostalgia filter determine what we're seeing here. Well, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of things are different though between what I know my experience was and what I see um, among children and families around me. Um, I wasn't constantly being shuttled around to activities. I was at home. If I were, you know, if I wasn't at church, I was at home, homeschooled. Um, so the part of the busyness that seems to typify, um, that class was not something that I experienced then. Uh, also the, the proliferation of, uh, news networks and, um, news via the internet and all the rest of that, I think just makes our culture as a whole much more engaged in larger scale political matters day to day than Yeah, I'll was, agree with that. Yeah, that's probably true. Than, than I was yeah. than I was growing up. Right. And part of it was I was trying to respond to Michael's question about virtues of the suburbs. I was yeah. trying to I was I was trying to be nice like grubs here and Michael's yeah. trying to shoot me down. <laughs> Well, I mean, if it, if it worked the way it could work, mm-hmm. life in a community like that could help you recognize the the beauties and virtues of living in that small scale life. Sure, it, it can have the virtues of a small town, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Where, where I don't, and, and again, you have to be careful about the nostalgia filter. You have to make sure that when you're talking about small town life, you're not actually talking about Main Street USA at Disney World. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean obviously there there is a there is a sort of community that that we associate with small towns that we don't associate with suburbs even though it sounds like all three of us grew up in suburbs that were like small towns in that sense. Oh yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely. But again, I've I've lived in I I lived in a small town before I moved to the large apartment building I live in now and I didn't know any of my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, there there is no time that I feel more like I live in a small town than during Little League baseball season. <laughs> when I, well, no, I mean, when I am, you know, interacting with, you know, school teachers and you know, store owners and you know, just In- interacting people. with them is a nice nice word for yelling at them at the uh, baseball game, Nathan. Well, I mean, there there are idiots. <laughs> I've, I've found that you know, among the human Fair species, enough. one has to travel a long ways before one doesn't find idiots. Drinking a six-pack of beer and yelling at the umpire I don't think counts as interacting with your community. (laughs) 
the big vice of the the suburbs, the the the, the one that 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 at least typically is is this this conformity mm-hmm. that, that you hear uh, you hear talked about. Would you would you is that does that true to you guys' experience of the suburbs? I'll go ahead and talk first about that. I mean, I think that it was something that was a construct against which I formed my identity as a teenager. I'm not sure how much it was a reality. I'll admit I, you know, when I, when I read, uh, you know, accounts from the 1950s and 1960s about this creeping conformity, uh, I don't know if that was really present in the 1980s and 1990s when I was coming of age, but I will say for sure that, you know, I did position myself as the nonconformist, you know, who's going to resist whatever it was that did or did not exist out there. Well, that certainly sounds like you. <laughs> was your was your suburb relatively racially integrated? It was a weird racial mix. What I tell people is we had a ton of African Americans and not one of them was black. Uh because we had one of the larger mosques in the Midwest in town. So I grew up going to school with, you know, a lot of Moroccans and Egyptians and, you know, uh, and I realized these next two places are not in, uh, in Africa and Pakistanis and, uh, trying to think here. I, I think those were the three big areas where people, you know, came to Indianapolis and then, you know, they would go to mosque in Plainfield and usually settle out there. So, you know, it, it was really fascinating, you know, when I went to college in East Tennessee and discovered that, you know, I was, one of the few who had Muslim friends growing up. Cause like my suburb, I, I, there was a black family, but they didn't, they, they were, I, I don't think they were excluded. I think they were down the hill. And so they didn't come to the parties that were up the hill. I gotcha. You know, but, but mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was pretty lily white. Uh, mm. how about yours, David? Um, I lived, uh, the neighborhood that I lived in was three streets away from uh, a community of a very different character called Woodlawn, um, which was uh, which was a, a largely uh, a largely black neighborhood, and but Woodlawn had the closest library, so <laughs> we were in Woodlawn a lot, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yes, there were train tracks that separated us, but you know we crossed the train tracks. Um, you know, they didn't live on. You know, the, the 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 people who lived in Woodlawn didn't live on my street, but they lived close to my street. And you know, also the conformity thing. Um, I, w- I will just say that that very often the kinds of uh, the, the 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 sorts of people who see a problem with suburban conformity that are themselves that have, that, that have already a kind of remarkable sameness. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think suburbanites are the only people that you can point conformity fingers at. Um, well, n- n- no, but it's not like, pro- it's not like progressive types sit back and say, yes, we were re- we reject the conformity of suburbs and then become, I don't know, Zoroastrians or Benedictines or something. <laughs> no, but but I think you will find that as you move closer to the city, there are more types of people living around each other. Fair enough. 
So I, I live in a first-ring suburb. I, I really think – I live inside the perimeter of Minneapolis. I really think it, it is pretty much a the outer skirts of Minneapolis rather than a first-ring suburb, but whatever. My building has every sort of person who lives in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. You have you have white young professionals, you have college students, you have African Americans, you have. This morning I saw uh, what I assume, what I take to, because of the area of the country I live in, what I take to be a Somali woman wearing a, a burqa walking across the parking lot. I mean, so I I would say that the place I live now is much more ethnically diverse and and um, occupationally diverse than than when I lived further out into the suburbs. So I I, I mean I do I do think they they often have a point about uh, demographics. Now, mm-hmm. whether that results in like a spiritual conformity, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whether it results in narrow-mindedness, I don't know. But I, I, do, think, I do think there's a, there's a point to be made here about who lives in the suburbs. Right. And, and maybe less of a point than it was, I'm sure, less of a point than it was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can find pretty much anything in the suburb nowadays. And you do. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about cultural depictions. I mean, um, it's a it's a favorite topic in my own field of study, post-war American literature. Uh, let's let's talk about some of the most interesting depictions of suburbia in literature, or music, or film. Uh, David, let's start with you, and when you're done, just tell Nathan to go. Oh me. So yes, now the medievalist is going to talk about depictions of suburbs. Um, <laughs> Well, we call that fairyland. Yes, I, I already <laughs> mentioned the, that Psalter from 1350. No, I, um, I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk about television from my childhood. I grew up. Um, I watched Sesame Street. I watched the Andy Griffith Show, and then I watched an entire series of 80s. Uh, sitcoms. All right. Um, but you know, I'll cite the Brady Bunch. Um, so if you, if you think about the way, think about the ways that people live, um, in those, uh, Sesame street, very clearly supposed to be modeled on urbanite New York life. Yeah. Sesame street supposed to, yeah. Sesame street's supposed to be in New York. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, community happens on the sidewalk. Uh, there are very few interiors in Sesame Street. You go to Hooper's store, that's about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I watched the Annie Griffith show, and yes, okay, Opie lives in a house. <laughs> but Opie lives in a house that's also relatively near to the, uh, the administrative center of his community, uh, the courthouse the school, all of those things are are together. That's small town life, right? The, the domestic situation of the child in, you know, in Mayberry is very close to, uh, the center of, you know, civil decision-making, uh, legal decision-making, uh, commerce, all of those things are, are close uh, and then I think of shows like, oh, I don't know, like The Brady Bunch or Family Matters or things like that in which 
the action of the show largely takes place inside of this fairly sizable house mm-hmm. that you know people leave sometimes to go other places. <laughs> <laughs> but everything happens inside the house. Now, part of that is just material conditions of staging a sitcom. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper if the story never leaves the house. But also, uh, I think that's uh, that's a kind of depiction of suburban life, of of a kind of enclosed um, family in a silo, mm-hmm. the, the, where where the the stories happen in you know inside that inside those walls, and if there are neighbors, they're invasive neighbors like Steve Urkel. <laughs> um, and, and if they go to school, there's no transition between school and, and home. It's just like suddenly they're there. Right. Mm-hmm. And it gives you the sense that, you know, where is the school in relation to the home in terms of the physical community? You don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it I, I have to, I have to tell you though, David, family matters is set in Chicago. Like I'm, I, mm-hmm. I actually just looked up the house that, that's in the opening credits, and mm-hmm. it's uh, five blocks west of Lincoln Park. Hmm. So now I, you... the interior of the house is obviously way bigger than the exterior shot, right? Yeah. So th- they're presenting a fantasy of urban life that's probably not right. accurate. Well, it's the same thing with uh, with the Cosby Show, right? The Cosby Show right, is set right. in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, exactly. and Full House is another good one. Full, Full House is is clearly mm-hmm. like. Uh, San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco, but the house is much bigger yeah. on the inside than it looks on the outside. Yeah. Because who yeah, wants my... to watch a who wants to watch a sitcom set in a place where the living room is ten by ten? <laughs> you, you, yeah. you know. Yeah, my 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 point being, yes, the 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 ostensible fictional setting is yes, they're in an urban center, but you don't see them in the show living the kind. They don't live Sesame Street lives. Or, or for that matter, Perfect Strangers' Lives, which is the show that Family Matters is spun off from, but which is about two young white men living in the city, in, mm-hmm. in an apartment right. in the city, you know? Right. You know, or, or a show like, uh, you know, a show like Friends, where there's an apartment across the hall, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and a coffee shop. And, you know, there are these other locations that indicate their life. You know, yeah, I know. I, I know that the shows that I'm talking about in particular were shows that were meant, you know, for children to be watching, and they focus mainly on kind of family dynamics. They're very domestic shows, but I think I, you know, I, I still see those as kind of reflections of at least what the producers of the shows thought that their target audience would connect with. Sure. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch, Nathan. Well, a couple of couple of things come to my mind. Actually, first, I mean, just to comment briefly uh, on David's, uh, I, I just have to note that recently uh, Steve Urkel has come under fire by internet feminists, uh, which made me sad in in a way that you know I don't want to theorize right now. But for some reason, to think of Steve Urkel as one of the villains of the early '90s hurts my heart a little bit. He does not take <laughs> no for an answer. I mean, he he stalks that girl. Oh, I know, I know. And like I said, I don't want to theorize it right now, although apparently you're inclined to, but uh, the fact that he has now become one of the villains along with the, uh, you know, ah, 
I won't go any further with that. I'm in, just other, gonna... in other words, to answer his question, yes, he did do that. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, one movie, and I, and I realize that the setting is probably not uh, suburban technically, although the setting is so nebulous that I think it still works, is the movie A Christmas Story. Uh, and you know, the reason that I think of it as suburban is precisely because the boys in that story walk to and from school. They walk to play with each other. Uh, but they get in a car to go buy a Christmas tree or go visit Santa Claus. Uh, and I mean that sort of dynamic where, you know, part of your life is pedestrian and part of it is motorized, uh, strike me, strikes me as a very suburban, um, structure to existence, even if, you know, and I'm sure Michael will tell me here in a second. Actually, that's supposed to be set in downtown Chicago or whatever. It's, it's set in Cleveland. But, it's it's not a, that's that's also not a suburb. Well, no, no, no. I know the house is in Cleveland, but the story is set somewhere in northern Indiana. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, Danny Anderson, believe me, tells oh, me. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, that that house is in Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> Clevelanders have to take what they can get. It's true. It's true. Um, the other, uh, is, a, is actually a pop music phenomenon. And, you know, if any of my students are listening, you can get your cheap laugh here because of course, if I mention pop music is going to be before 1997. <laughs> um, but I think in the mid nineties, uh, the rise of bands like Green Day and the Offspring are a very sort of suburban phenomenon. Uh, there's this sense of alienation from people who, you could drive 20 minutes and see, but you don't really know it all. There is a sense that, you know, there are centers of great violence very nearby. And yet the problems that occupy, you know, uh, those early albums, and I can't speak much beyond 1997, of course, about what they put out since then. Uh, but Dookie and uh, Smash, uh, those albums are very, very much con- concerned with, you know, sort of this boredom, and this sense of disconnection from the world and really a sort of nihilism that arises from that. And I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, those two albums in my mind sort of point to that, that darker side of the suburbs that we've been talking about. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, it's very protected as an environment. There is great potential, you know, to become the sort of overachiever personality that, you know, turns into a college English professor uh, but then there's also, I mean, that sense of alienation that leaves you nowhere to stand if you're going to stand for something. What do you got, Michael? I'm going to talk about a hack job and then one that I don't think – sometimes gets treated as a hack job that's not. So the hack job is the movie American Beauty, which won an Oscar <laughs> in probably in 1999. And it's just the ugliest portrayal of the suburbs you can imagine. It, it's 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 the, exactly the sort of thing that David finds himself straining against. And it's not true to my experience of the suburbs anyway, if you've, if you've never seen that movie. I'm not sure it's worth seeing, frankly. It's not a very good movie. It, it's kind of ridiculous that it won the Oscar that year, except uh, it allows people to feel superior, I think. Mm-hmm. So, And, I mean, I, I think Kevin Spacey's performance was a good one. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Spacey. But, I mean, I love everything. I'm, I'm, I'm the one person in the South who doesn't mind his South Carolina accent. He, he's, he's one of the great actors, I'll give you that. Uh, <laughs> but the, the movie itself I don't think is very good. Oh, yeah, the movie's a turd. Yeah. I... <laughs> so, so you've now said turd and dookie within two minutes. So. <laughs> He's regressing. Um, the, the one I don't think is a hack job that sometimes gets treated as one is John Cheever, who who 
you hear talked about as though he were this great critic of the suburbs, and in some way he is. But you have to remember, he lived in Ossining, New York. And in fact, when Mad Men wanted to give a home to Don Draper, they picked Ossining, I assume, in reference to, uh, to, to Cheever living there. He lived there because he wanted to. Um, he mm-hmm. had lived in, in Manhattan and moved to Ossining because he preferred it. And if you read his short stories carefully, yeah, some of them are about suburban conformity and make it look bad. Um, but if, if you read a story like The Housebreaker of Shady Hill, which involves uh, a guy breaks into people's houses, I, I believe he's after money, but he, he, he's, he's, yeah, he's low on money and he, he kind of, instead of going about this in a, more legal way, he breaks in and steals things. That story, if you read it carefully, is clearly about the way that the suburbs can protect the ethical mindsets of the people who live in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he is he he falls from grace by breaking away from the inherent ethics of the suburbs, which are there to protect him. And I think it's in in that story and several others that you really see uh, the Cheverian. Chivarian suburbs as being an extension of what Crevacur says about the American farm, that this is the place for human flourishing um, mm-hmm. in, in, in the time. And you got to remember, I mean, he's writing when the suburbs as an American phenomenon are still only about 20 years old. Uh, and then, then you, uh, his most famous story is the swimmer, right? And the, the swimmer is about a man who has fallen away from, um, from the community around him Um it's all these parties uh, that he, he goes to and he's, he takes it upon himself to swim his way home from a party by going through these uh, swimming pools. And as the story progresses, not to spoil a story that's 50 years old, he, he discovers <laughs> that, that his life has fallen to pieces. And this is typified by the people feeling bad for him and not talking to him and being kind of grossed out by him. Um, so, so the suburbs are this place that allows you to be who you're meant to be in a weird way. And when you, when you stop doing that, when you fall apart from the community, one, you can look at that and say, oh, well, they don't like him anymore because they're conformist. Or you can look at it and say, well, he's committed an ethical violation that has cut him off from this community. So if, if you are apt to see Cheever as a great critic of the suburbs, I suggest you read him again more closely, um, because he he is at the very least ambivalent about it, ambivalent in a way that I don't think the show Mad Men is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that Mad Men has brought Cheever back to the public uh, stage, but I I you know I, I I think in moving from Cheever to Mad Men, we've moved from somebody subtle to something substantially no. less subtle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I don't think Mad Men is is mostly about the suburbs. It it has no. a, a few things to say about it, but I wouldn't call that a show about the suburbs. Mm-mm. One of the more interesting demographic shifts in the last 10 years or so is that cities are becoming increasingly gentrified, and that means poverty is moving out to the suburbs, which were created out of affluence, right? Uh, Nathan, do you find this shift as interesting as I do, and what do you think it suggests about the future of suburbs? Well, it's interesting because the one of the phenomena that you've already named, Michael, is the ex-herb uh, so, I mean, as people, you know, gain disposable resources, but not enough to move into the city center where, you know, the, the rent is too darn high, I've been told, um, they are 
kind of stuck in a situation where, as you say, the poor folks have been pushed out of the city center. I mean, in Atlanta, you know, there's now an ordinance making it illegal to beg on the street, uh, which I, I, I found a little bit monstrous when they first passed it. And I don't think I've changed my mind about that. Um, so, I mean, people are moving farther and farther out and buying, as I said before, larger and larger plots of land on which to plant their houses. And so you get uh, a phenomenon, I'll go ahead and credit my little brother with this one, that he calls the decay donut, uh, where, you know, you've got this band of poverty and abandoned buildings and things like that between the wealthy exurbs and the wealthy city center. Um I do find this interesting. I mean, one of the fascinating things, at least in Indianapolis, and I know I keep returning to Indianapolis, but I mean, it's the suburban environment that I know best. I mean, here here in Georgia, uh, I live in the exurbs of a college town and commute to a Christian college in the middle of nowhere, so I, I'm not really around the suburban environment as much. Um, but in Indianapolis, I mean, you know, as the... Uh, I guess the inner city, to use a, a phrase that doesn't get used as much, uh, filled up with black people leaving the South in the early 20th century, the white suburbs kind of grew. Well, now, as the white suburbs flee outwards even further, those older suburbs are now largely being inhabited by folks who are coming from Latin America. Uh, so what you get, I mean, is, you know, an ethnic diversity in the Indianapolis area, at least, uh, that is very regional uh, but that doesn't have, you know, just one white area, but there are a plurality of white areas that are, you know, sort of boundaried by little Mexico, as they call it. That, that's that's uh, happening in Atlanta, too. The, the street okay. I grew up on, that, that happened, too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, the shopping center that, you know, we used to have to drive into from Plainfield where there used to be, you know, a, a Kmart and a Target and a Hills. Uh, I mean, all of those store signs now, the ones that are not abandoned, are all in Spanish. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where I think that, you know, the immigration patterns of the last 50 years or so, uh, where, you know, the big immigrant groups are no longer sort of, you know, Southern European and Eastern European, but they are Latin American, uh, have really given rise to that, you know, sort of new suburban shift that you're talking about. Um David, I you know I I know that you know McPherson, Kansas, uh, also isn't too near a a grand urban center. But I mean, what experience do you have with this new suburbia? Um, the fact that my parents uh, still live in, uh, well, they they live in an area that when we when uh, they first moved to the house that they live in now, they don't they don't live in the house that I grew up in. They they moved there. They moved to a, a different house. Um, when I graduated high school, that neighborhood had been a decently affluent, um, largely white neighborhood. Um, and then now the area around it, uh, that, that my, my parents' neighborhood, the people who are moving in there are, uh, are actually more affluent, um, uh, African-American businessmen, people like that, uh, who are trying to get out of 
the the worst neighborhoods and the urban centers and get their kids into good school systems. Mm-hmm. So most of my parents' neighbors, uh, most of my parents' neighbors are black, and you know it's cool. But you go you go down to where uh, the less affluent people lived in that same area of town, the less affluent white people. Now, yeah, it's it's what it was what you're describing, Nathan, with all the all the uh, all the signs are in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it, you know it's 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 a distinct pattern. But the the interesting thing is that I it, it doesn't feel like like we can really talk about white flight from the urban center anymore. Yeah, it's white flight into the urban center. Well, yeah, because there, well, there's some in the urban center, but for the most part, at least in Birmingham, Alabama, most people don't actually work in the urban center. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, now the the exurbs, the the outside the city place, is where people work. Um. So they're they're not actually running away residentially while still commuting. They're just living in different communities, <laughs> you know. They're they're not even in the greater metro area anymore. And what happens in the urban center of Birmingham has very little to do with um, a lot of what goes on. Which is too bad because Birmingham actually has a very nice downtown. Well, it does now. Yeah, because it got it gentrified. Because it, <laughs> it got, cause it yep. got gentrified. You, your your two choices are gentrification or poverty, right? I mean, th- those yeah. are the two opposites and, and yeah. neither one of them are great, right? <laughs> I mean, gentrification, gentrification pushes a lot of people who could otherwise afford to live there out. And, and I mean, that's not a good thing. I don't think, no. but on the other hand, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a sociologist and I'm not an economist, so I, I don't have a lot of suggestions. I'm, I'm just repeating other people's observations here. There were several large historic housing complexes near downtown Birmingham, um, including uh, one that uh, I believe some of my grandfather's relatives lived in back in the late 30s and 40s um, that uh, were torn down about 10 years ago. And now it's townhouses that none of us could afford to live in. Right. Well, that happened at Cabrini Green in Chicago. You know, mm-hmm. one of the most infamous housing projects ever I most has mostly been torn down and replaced with, uh, I don't know if it's super expensive uh, for Chicago, but it's, it's, um, much, much more expensive than Cabrini green. And, uh, you know, as a result, there are no longer snipers on the roof shooting at the police, which, you know, that's kind of a silver lining, but at the same time, <laughs> you have, you have to wonder where the people who lived in Cabrini green are going to live now. Right. There's no easy solutions to these problems. We all it's it's easy to look at the suburbs and say, well, you know, this is this is a place where white people to go to get away from ethnic right. minorities. But the, then, the but then, what happens when when the cultural elites who sneer, or you know, kind of cultural elites who sneer at the suburbs and just love the urban life decide that what they're going to do is, <laughs> you know relocate the poor people who live in the urban center so that now they can live there. They, they, mm-hmm. they love the urban life uh, uh, cut off from the danger and the color and the, you know, 
ethnicity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, that that's that's no better. No, and in in ways, I think it's significantly worse. <laughs> well, it certainly means I can't live downtown, and that bothers me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've I've never been one who who saw the romance of urban life anyway. So you're not going to get any competition from me, Michael. Well, I appreciate that. I'm always glad to hear when people don't want to live in the city. <laughs> Actually, I think there was an article a few years ago, I don't remember where it was, that argued that uh, the reason so many people of our generation want to live in the city is because of Sesame Street. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah. Anyway, we're uh, we're running out of time here, so let's end with a bit of prescription. Um, I think we can all agree the suburbs are not necessarily, at least, the bastion of conformity and the hidden sin that that certain cultural texts, American beauty, uh, make them out to be. What what do we need to do with them? What what can happen in the future to make suburbs and exurbs places of genuine human flourishing? Dave, the suburbs, um, because they are places where uh, where, you, where where a home can be owned and it can be your place uh, in a way that's that's not always necessarily true for life in an urban center, but also a, a place of your own that's near the places of others in a way that's not true of rural life. Um, it could be an opportunity for for hospitality, for for neighborliness, for being together in a community that's that's very rich. Um, the 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 opportunity is there. The material conditions could be there. Um, you don't have to live on Sesame Street to have neighbors. <laughs> you could actually talk to the people that live in the house next to you in the suburb. Mm. Um, but. But the kind of the kind of distance and just sort of general alienation, I think, you know, these days fostered largely just by busyness um, and our, our, our preoccupation with things that have very little to do with where we're physically at at the moment or where we live physically. Um, you know, that that's that's you know, that's the danger. You know, we could all just go inside our house and watch TV. Um but the opportunity is there. Right? You don't have to. You had you. You don't have to move to Sesame Street to have Sesame Street neighbors. <laughs> you know. I, I, I guess. I guess that's what I would. What, what I would say. Um, is, yeah. How do we make it a genuine place where humans flourish? Hey, recognize that other humans are there. Invite some of them over for dinner. Talk to them. Wave. <laughs> I can do the waving. I just I do not know how to talk to my neighbors. I have I, I just have no idea how to do it. Hmm. Well, that's not the suburbs' fault. <laughs> I mean, you know, but you're not a suburb. You're an apartment. You're it's in a suburb. I mean, it is like I said. It's kind of a middle ground. And what is a what is a large apartment complex if not a small town? Well, I mean, Sher- Sherwood Anderson wrote Winesburg, Ohio, not about the people in Clyde, Ohio, where he grew up, but about the people in his tenement house mm-hmm. in um, in Chicago. So, I, I mean, there, there's a sense in which large apartment buildings are kind of suburbs to themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Nathan, what do we need to do? Well, I'm inclined to turn to the last chapter of After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre, uh, simply because my own temptation when I when I face a question like this is to go the route of Leon Trotsky and say, we need to seize political power, we need to engineer the society, and we need to make these global, uh, you know, nation-level changes. Uh, what McIntyre suggests is that, you know, what... I guess the next step in living morally in a sort of late modern world probably is going to be is not the way of Trotsky, but of St. Benedict. Uh, And so, I mean, kind of going the same direction that uh, David just went, I would say that, you know, paying attention to your surroundings and learning not ways to make your system other than your system, but ways to, resist those tendencies within your system that dehumanize and to celebrate those elements of your system that humanize is probably the way to go. So in other words, I mean, if suburbs are, as I said before, that space between the gigantic city and then the isolated country life, uh, don't try to turn it into a city, don't try to turn it into a farm, but learn to live well inside of the suburb, make it attractive enough that other people might want to do that alongside of you. And maybe that way there might be a little bit of hope. And that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> well, uh, listeners, if you have any suggestions, if you feel like we've been too hard or too soft on the suburbs, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you send us something, we'll read it on our next listener feedback episode. Nathan, what are we doing next week? Well, next week we're going to turn to a uh, – a set of questions that often occupies intro to philosophy students, although not if uh, Hercules is your professor, uh, namely the <laughs> five proofs of God from Thomas Aquinas. Thank you, David. Is is one of them that he's living on the inside, roaring like a lion? It very well might be. Well, listener, you'll have to tune in next week to find out if that's true. Uh, in the meantime, uh, our show notes for this episode and all our others are up on our website at christianhumanist.org, where... There are occasionally blog posts about other things, too. So you can also like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes. We appreciate your ratings, although I don't read them because uh, if we got a bad one, it would make me sad for weeks. But we appreciate (laughs) them anyway because that's how we get new listeners. Uh, Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying, Let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. The suburbs are